Welcome to episode 77, The Mind-Body Connection, The Simple Habit That Makes Us Healthier, featuring Mark Pirtle, Doctor of Physical Therapy, by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today, I am excited to be joined by Dr. Mark Pirtle. We're going to be talking about what is really uh, behind all stress-related conditions and how this information can help us as practitioners. Uh, Dr. Mark Pirtle, he is a doctor of physical therapy, and he's also faculty at Dr. Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona, and he operates a private practice in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background? Well, as you mentioned, I'm a physical therapist, and I, I started in uh, diagnostic orthopedics, sports medicine, but I transitioned into chronic pain, and I started a pain program for a rehab institution, a psychiatric hospital, um, basically inpatient rehab, which um, starting a pain program makes sense for a physical therapist, um, but I noticed that very quickly that the patients that I saw in rehab, um, they all had chronic pain, of course, but they were 90% or higher addicted to their pain medicine. And most of them also had a mood disorder, depression, or anxiety. And so I was thrown immediately into this um, gray area of the mind-body. And and I've been fascinated by that intersection of the mind and the body and and working at that level ever since. So tell me more about kind of the mind-body connection and why this topic matters to you. It sounds like you started with the pain management piece, but then quickly realized that there was a relationship between what was happening in the facility you were working with pain management patients or clients, but then also the comorbidity of mental health conditions. Really what got me into the work, uh, of um, pain management at this rehab institution in the first place was I um, I had this sort of bottoming out experience in my own life where I lost my business and um, I became disconnected from the life that I thought I was putting together as a businessman. And um, so I had this dark night of the soul. I, I was very angry and uh, I suffered for quite a long time, years in fact, just fixated on a story in my head about this betrayal in my business. And I developed a whole bunch of stress-related conditions. I got chronic pain, uh, restless leg syndrome. I had uh, irritable bowel. I had heart palpitations, insomnia. And my medicine chest was full of pills. And I ended up in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery that uh, I affectionately uh, refer to that as my rehab. And I spent two months there uh, learning to watch my own mind. And so I already had a a lived sense of the mind-body connection. I, I knew for sure that my fixation on my story that, that story of injustice that I was uh, so uh, caught up with was the reason I developed all of these conditions. And I'd also gotten to the point of realization because, as I said, my medicine chest was full of pills, but the pills, although they helped 
reduce the intensity of the symptoms, they weren't a cure. And as long as I stayed fixated on that narrative of injustice, you know, I was, I was the one that was actually creating the toxic soup that was fomenting all these mind-body illnesses. You know, you stay stuck on a story of injustice and you're going to juice yourself with cortisol and adrenaline and a lot of other stress chemicals. And over time, those chemicals that come out like instantaneous, your brain produces immediate change based on the narrative that you're stuck on. And if you marinate in those chemicals for too long, you were going to get sick. That's how a story makes a person sick. And so I already knew this by the time I started the pain program because by the time I started the pain program, I was, I was already riding the ship. You know, the, the, I was pulling up on, on the stick and, you know, I was, I was, my altitude was, was increasing. So I'd, I'd had some sense of the mind-body connection. And I also learned how to meditate while I was at this monastery. And I'd been meditating long enough by then to see the beneficial effects. So what meditation really helps a person do is immediate exercise in control. Well, I shouldn't say controlling, influencing the, the focus of your attention. And you continue to do that for hours and hours. And pretty soon you, you get reasonably good at shifting your attention, which helps then shift you away from destructive narratives. And so I'd, I'd lived this and I understood this. And that's that's basically from where my own personal experience and of course, you know, my study in chronic pain from where I developed the programming that I took Sierra Tucson. Thank you. Thank you for sharing the personal component of this for you. Um, one of the words that you've used is just the idea of stress. And I think in our society, we are just very accustomed to being chronically stressed out, both as practitioners and as clients or patients. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you see stress and kind of the definition of stress? Okay. Well, there's, there's actually not an agreed upon definition of stress, which is uh, interesting, but um, that's because I think it's so amorphous. But a good way to understand stress is stress is going to arise in a context. And whatever is happening, a person is going to be in that context and, that, and, and relating to what is happening. Now, so there's an external component. That's what's happening. But the internal component is how am I relating to what's happening? And that's different for every single person. There isn't a quote unquote stressful context, there are contexts that can be stressful depending on how people relate to them. There are um, uh, few people, but they exist, that in the face of mortal combat, their nervous systems actually calm down. They, they zero in and they become focused and in a zone. And so the, the, the stress for them is completely different than the average person in that situation, somebody shooting at you, for example. But there are other situations that, you know, think, think of somebody that has agoraphobia and how easy it is for most people to just walk out of their house 
doesn't seem like a stressful situation, but the person with agoraphobia, they relate to that situation completely differently. And so stress is stressful depending on who you are and how you're relating to circumstances. I, I like that way of putting it. Um, and I think one thing that I've noticed in my practice sometimes we're so accustomed to being chronically stressed that we're not even aware that we are at that state of hyperarousal. Um, tell us more about even what stress is in the body. Like what are the what are the markers for stress if we were looking at it from a biological perspective? Well, obviously heart rate is going to increase, blood pressure, um, uh, digestion is going to slow, pupils are going to dilate. But those those physiological changes to the stressed out person, they're not going to be worried or even thinking about the physiological changes. They're going to be in their experience. And their experience is going to be primarily um, defined by how they feel. And so the feeling state of the body is what people under stress um, define as their stress. You know, the squeezing in the chest, the pressure in the chest, the, the butterflies in the stomach, you know, those, those sensations that become intense, that's what a person who's experiencing stress defines as stress, doesn't like, and wants to medicate. Does that make sense? And so it's, it's less that, you know, a stressed out person isn't going to recognize that their pupils dilate or that, that their digestion slows down. They're not going to notice that. But they are going to notice, oh, my chest just is, is squeezing right now. Absolutely. That they're not sleeping well, that they feel keyed up, they're restless. Right. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Restlessness, irritability. And the irritability, and I was, was about to say the inability to concentrate, you know, again, those are, those are secondary sequela of a person who's just feeling horrible. It's just like chronic pain. It's really hard to concentrate when you're in intense pain. And, and to the brain, by and large now, to the brain, pain is pain. The same circuits kind of light up when you're in emotional pain and physical pain. After a certain threshold, it's really hard to pay attention, to compose yourself, to gather yourself. And this is sort of really the role, I think, that medicine plays in all of this. I'm I'm not a uh, I'm not a person who says you know just because I'm a meditator and a mind body person I'm not I I don't work with my clients and say you know throw all the medicine away the, the medicine has a role and the role is to lower the intensity of symptoms but if you're not doing anything to learn how to work with the intense feelings with your how you're relating and this is really important how a person learns to cope or relate to their intense feelings of distress, that's going to be the marker for whether or not that person gets through and is able to cope skillfully and get through this time in their life that's extremely stressful. They have to learn how to relate to those feelings differently. When we're looking at stress and the resulting feelings, you know, the that pain in the chest and not being able to calm down. What are some of the long-term impacts of stress or even shorter term just in the body when we're looking at how stress impacts overall health? The big thing, 
facts are that your immune system goes into the tank. I remember being sick. So after my business blew up and I was so angry, I was sick for a year after that, an entire year. I did not get over this cough and sort of asthma-like uh, and I am just sort of doing air quotes right now because it, it wasn't exactly asthma, but I had a cough for over a year because my immune system was so, it was in the tank because I wasn't sleeping well. And and this is this is something short and long-term, stress degrades your sleep. And, and, and if your immune system goes into the tank, you're not sleeping well, your endocrine system becomes dysfunctional in that uh, I'm better word it would be out of balance um, and and there are all kinds of sequelae that that come from that I think the chronic pain that I developed I developed not because I hurt myself but my tissues if you think of my cells and the intercellular spaces were infused with stress chemicals that over time caused my tissues to become inflamed and and foment uh, tendonitis-like symptoms in my elbows. And yeah, I developed golfer's elbow and tennis elbow in both elbows for over five years. I, it was, I could hardly pick up a glass of juice. And it wasn't because I was playing tennis and golf. I just, my body was a toxic soup. And, and, and then I got, um, atrial fibrillation. And the atrial fibrillation, <clears throat> that left a mark in my body. I changed my heart because of my anger. And, and then after I became a meditator, it didn't matter that I was doing things right after the fact. I'd already imprinted my body with those stresses and for years. And so I ended up having, and I'm 50, I'm, today's actually my birthday, I'm 59 today. And uh, I had heart surgery this year. You know, not open heart, but I had an atrial, uh, I, I had a heart ablation where they go in and they, they ablate the, what's it called, the pulmonary vein that feed into your uh, right atrium. And uh, yeah, they took a radio frequency thing and burned those cells so my heart wouldn't fibrillate anymore. Because in the beginning, it was, it, it fibrillated and then it would go away. But years later, it just it got worse and worse and worse. And it wasn't because I was meditating and, and I was, because I, I was better. Like all, most of those things, my chronic pain and the irritable bowel and like all of those things got better, but this didn't. It, it stayed. It, it, it left an imprint in my body. And so when you ask about the long-term sequela, yeah, I, I mean, I got the t-shirt. I had heart surgery this year. So, so my advice to anyone, if you're under stress and you were like stressed out like I was for years and pissed off, careful, because there's a body that that story is running through. And that body is, and, those, and your precious cells are going to be affected by what you focus your attention on, that narrative. And there's no escape, there's no escaping it. Well, and that goes back to that idea of kind of mind-body connection. And 
so to to recap, you're saying basically that stress has this profound effect on lots of different systems, ranging from the immune system to the endocrine system to a basic inflammatory process that really stress is making us sick. But but I think a lot of us are kind of like, yeah, I'm just stressed, but it's fine. It's just the way it is. You know, there's there's a couple of kinds of stress that we have. We have we have distress, which is what we're talking about, the negative kind of stress. And we have eustress, the kind of stress that comes from, you know, doing a lot of really cool things at work, but having deadlines, but it's exciting or, or exercising is eustress as well. It, it ultimately that stress makes you stronger. Um, but the distress over time breaks you down. There's a huge difference there. And, and so if you're under a lot of distress, careful, you know, start start watching what you're eating more. Really change your diet so you're definitely getting the the leafy greens every single day, and you're limiting the amount of uh, foods that are are a burden to your system to digest. Get all the sleep that you can. Get those eight hours. You know, meditate. Um, you know, get your exercise. Like these kinds of things. These kinds of self care. Uh, lifestyle changes, if you're experiencing distress, don't leave those out because you only have one body in this lifetime and it's getting older all the time and it's it's recording what you're doing to it. And, and, and we're all going to, God willing, we're all going to get older. And if we don't take care of our precious body when we're young, the older it gets, the more worn out it's going to be. And then you're going to have to experience the added distress of being in a body that doesn't feel well. You know, I, I think not being well is one of the the greatest stressors of all. You know, people with autoimmune diseases. I mean, that's a heavy burden to carry. It'll it'll change who you are and who you th- what you think you're capable of. It sounds like you appreciate both personally and professionally then the power of of as you've called it the narrative kind of the story. So so here we have you know our ourselves or our clients that are very activated and are in a in the midst of a of a major stressful event or just a a stressful life. You know, maybe it's not a solitary thing or multiple things that happened. It's just kind of the the nature of the beast in their lives right now. How do we as clinicians start to help them understand the gravity of that and then address it? When I see clients, um, clients see me because they're not functioning well in life because stress is way too high. And 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 it can be physical pain or emotional pain or some combination of both. And so I always have this uh, dialogue with them about how they engage with the uh, with their life and 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 how a person engages is we engage through our attention, what we give our attention to. Um, If a person has chronic pain, physical pain, that signal is is biologically uh, programmed to pull your attention, to magnetize your attention. Uh, And the same is true 
of psychological pain, the narratives in our head, and especially the negative ones. We all have a negative attentional bias. But th there's a problem. If we're always hyper-focused on the negativities in our life, what we're going to do is we're going to, we become more, uh, how do I say, I, we become less aware of everything else. So the, the attentional fixation is on the negativities. And when att attention fixates, let me just talk a little bit about attention and awareness here, because this is, this is really the nut of all of it and, and how to understand how narratives, stories make a person sick. Uh, it's, it's, it's based on a, an imbalance that happens in our consciousness. So we are conscious beings and consciousness functions in two ways. One of the ways is that we have attention. Now attention is very much like a flashlight of consciousness. Flashlights shine on one thing. There's a beam that, that is uh, prescribed, it has a certain scope, and whatever the beam of your attention is on, you are more conscious of that thing. Now, awareness, that's different. Awareness is like this, is, is, is very much like sunlight. It shines everywhere. And, and awareness is aware of three domains. We're aware right now, all you and I and all of our listeners are somewhat aware of where we are. So what we see and what we hear immediately around us, that's the domain of the world. Secondarily, we are more or less aware of what we feel in our body. That's the second domain of awareness, the body. And thirdly, we can be more or less aware of what is in our mind, not only our thoughts, but our state of mind. So these three domains, the world, the body, and the mind, awareness covers all of them. And awareness also covers, or I should say is aware of where attention is focused. So when things, when, when your consciousness is balanced just right, you're globally aware and you're locally attentive. So right now, I'm, I'm locally attentive to answering this question and dialoguing with you, but I'm also globally aware. I can feel myself sit in this chair and there's an airplane flying overhead. And, and so globally, I'm aware of a larger uh, space in which I'm answering this question. Okay, now that's that's balanced consciousness. You can even when you're really energized to be globally aware and locally attentive, that's what mindfulness is. It's a mindfulness is the perfect balance of awareness and, and attention. All right. Now attentional fixation is a dysfunctional mode of consciousness. Now, we can't be aware of everything because there's just too much information. Information coming in from the world, the body, and the mind is infinite. You can't be aware of it all. 
So consciousness is an unlimited is is a limited resource. Now, when you're hyper focused on one thing and you lose yourself in that one object, let's say your physical pain, what happens is all of your consciousness gets funneled through the beam of your attention and your awareness dims. Your you the, the conscious your conscious awareness is drawn down by the hyper-focus. And, and this is where, if I could use the expression blind rage, because blind rage perfectly describes a fixated attention. The person who's blindly raging is, is hyper-focused on their object of anger, but not aware of anything else. You know, a per, there might be screaming, don't do it in the background, and it's like, that's not registering. Whoever's raging is not really in tune with the feelings in their body. They're they're living through a very narrowly defined beam of attention that's driven by an intention. So there's attention and intention, and those get wrapped up super tight. And this is so 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 that's the example of blind rage. Now now think of a person with PTSD. Let's say the person is not in a panic. And then all of a sudden some triggering mental imagery arises in their mind that catches their attention. And then from 0 to 60 they're gone. They are they in their mind, all of their conscious resource gets funneled through their attention on this, whatever was the mental imagery. And, and you know how they say a picture is worth a thousand words? So, so uh, one thought that flashes through your mind, it's a gestalt of a whole bunch of information that lights up a body and can throw someone into a panic state. And, and, and there's immediate attentional fixation, narrowing down of consciousness onto and, and relating with the thought that was that just occurred and all the awareness goes away. And, and why is awareness important? Awareness is important because you can't get a perspective on your perspective without awareness. You're, tra you're trapped in the, in the tunnel vision. And, and so if you think of PTSD, that's very similar to a person with anxiety where they have these feelings in the chest and then the hyper-focus, I want this to get better and then I'm scared I'm going to get it again and whoop, all the awareness goes away and a person is hyper-attentive and, and, and craving relief. So that's the intention. I hate this. I hate this. I need relief. So think of the chronic pain person. Now it's physical pain, but it's the same it's the same mode of consciousness, hyperfocus, no awareness of the neediness and how much how much you're adding to inadvertently. You're adding to the the experience, the distress. You're adding to the stress by hating it so much. And it's, it's important to understand we only have one nervous system. And so if your nervous system is producing pain sensations or feelings of anxiety, 
and you are relating to those sensations by hating them, you're juicing your nervous system with all kinds of stress chemicals, and it's only making it worse. And so, so this is where mindfulness comes in and why mindfulness is a potential cure, or I, I don't want to say cure, because it, mindfulness did not cure my heart palpitations, but I will say remedy and, and some things, some mind-body conditions that, that arise as a result, like the symptoms that arise as a result of stress may get better and go away completely, but there's no guarantee. Everybody's different and, and everybody's story is different and how, how your, much your body's been affected and whether you've crossed this invisible line in your life like I did with my heart, you know, there's no going back after that. So, so I'm, I'm painting broad strokes here. I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying something specific and definite. I'm speaking generally. Generally, what happens is attention fixates, awareness dims, and depending on the narrative, the theme of the story, threat, you're going to feel fear, loss, you're going to feel sadness, a sense of inadequacy, you're going to feel shame, right? Like, like emotions are going to come from that, and with the emotions are going to come the biochemistry and and however your story comes together in whatever um, chemical soup you end up, the mind body ends up generating, you know, a, a whole host of things can arise. So generally, it is true. Stories can make us sick. Now, what mindfulness is all about, mindfulness is working with intentions and attention when when a person sits down to meditate what is he or she doing i'm going to sit down and i am here's my intention i'm going to follow the breath at the tip of my nose and try to limit the time that my mind wanders that's my intention and so what am I doing? I'm giving marching orders to my attention to stay focused on the changing sensations of breath at the nose and notice, stay aware if my attention wanders away and my mind starts to wander on a different topic and then bring it back. That's the exercise. That's why mindfulness and meditation help because they get to the root of the mode of consciousness that is the source of all the problems that that you can't get locked into a story and poison your own biochemistry unless you're intentionally fixated the kind i just described is mindfulness meditation where there's a local attention and there's a global awareness and you stay aware of what your attention is doing. Okay? Right. Now, that's that's a, called a deconstructive practice. And the reason they call it deconstructive is because you're taking your experience apart. You're, you're, you're noticing broadly what you're doing. That's one part, the global part. But you're also noticing if attention is on the breath. You're taking your, the parts apart and noticing the relationships. Okay, 
Now, there's also a constructive meditation. Now, everybody's done constructive meditation. You, you know, you go and you do yoga and it's at the end and you're lying in Shavasana and you're imagining lying on the beach and the warm sun and the sand and you start to generate positive feelings as a result of that using your imagination. But it works both ways. What's a person who's depressed doing? They're attentionally fixated first on image, thoughts and imagery in their mind and, and a, a story of loss where, where they relate to that story as being um, a, sort of in this place where they feel hopeless. Okay, that's the narrative. And their attention is fixated there. And, and they've lost all awareness. That's a constructive meditation too. And just like loving kindness meditation practice, which is a constructive practice, can fill you with oxytocin and endorphins and good chemicals. A depression constructive practice can fill, fill you with the opposite. The, the, the chemicals that come with that narrative. And so this is we're doing this to ourselves in a way. I'm not saying that life circumstances don't play a part because they do, for sure. But that's not the whole story. The rest of the story is how are you relating to your experience? I think what you're really getting at and what you haven't said is this kind of mindful version of really mind control is what we're talking about. That when patients and practitioners appreciate the power of thinking and how that narrative, the story we tell ourselves, how that's influencing our present reality, how that's then influencing our body, and then how our bodies respond to that, you know, whether we're basically going to, to suffer essentially, or, or simply experience the pain and that there's a difference between those two. As we're talking about, I can see kind of the confluence of all of these different theories coming together in the discussion of, um, you know, basically what is wise mind and dialectical behavior therapy or act. And like you mentioned, motivational interviewing, narrative therapy, all of these things kind of coming together and appreciating that this is not just about the mind. It's about the mind's influence on the body and then how the body is in turn influencing the mind in a way that is a continuing process instead of this solitary incident that just happens. Right. It, it's totally, it's a system dynamic and we can't leave out the family either because everyone is directly affected by who they live with and the the habits of mind and and the habits of um relating that uh, the people that we live with have you know it, emotions are contagious and so it's it's really hard to get better um if if you're depressed and you're living with a person who's depressed and and unsupportive or or a person who's angry and and unsupportive it's hard there are a lot of parts that form the whole system of your life and you you a person who um 
really wants to reach sort of an apex of health and wellness, like maximize that for themselves, you have to you have to line a lot of things up. I'm reminded, you know, this idea of how all these factors come together and also how our thoughts could really influence, I think, our own resilience or self-efficacy. I'm reminded of a client the first time that she was able to not have what was for her a panic attack kind of take over. And I remember when it happened in session and she described it and like, it, it was not the usual narrative of how it had blindsided her and taken her down. And she was so ashamed and embarrassed and having to leave work or school. And it, it wasn't that she said, well, I, you know, I did X, Y, Z. And then I reminded myself of X, Y, Z. And then I did deep breathing and I, you know, challenged myself to notice these things in my environment. And she just kind of puffed up and described like, and I was able to get through it. And I remember watching her in that moment, how she, it really had nothing to do with me as a practitioner there. It was that moment where she appreciated that she had the power to influence her thoughts and that that was going to change her physical experience. And then she had this pretty minor panic episode relative to what she had experienced before and kind of shook it off and then went back into work and and then days later recounted it to me. Um, it's I think it's such a powerful thing in what you're presenting and this idea of, you know, the the applied um, knowledge of attention and awareness and working with clients to appreciate how that changes their experience in their life. Right. And, and especially, I, I love the example that you just gave. Um, I, having worked at, uh, in rehab for about a decade, um, be, because of my early experience, you know, in the bottoming out story that I told, you know, I'd had chronic pain, I'd had some addictive behaviors, I had depression, so a lot of the the reasons why a person might uh, admit to a 30-day rehab program, like I'd experience them personally. And so I could relate to my, uh, my clients, my patients, uh, but I'd never had a panic attack. And I always thought, you know, I wish I'd have a panic attack just so I could relate to my clients uh, and I could help them with them. And so uh, a few years later, I was sitting on a meditation cushion and from out of nowhere, these feelings of panic just rushed up from I don't know where. And so when you're, at least when I was meditating at that moment, I was very concentrated and aware of everything that was arising in my experience. And so I met those rising feelings of panic with total curiosity. I was like, oh, here we go. And I was ready to ride the wave all the way through. And because I met the panic with curiosity and openness, instead of with fear and, and resistance, they the energy of the panic completely dissolved. And I, and I was like, wow, it, it just started to come. And then it was just like, it was like puncturing a balloon. It was blah, 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 done. And then uh, I would say only one other time in my life 
had I nearly experienced panic. And that was in the middle of the night while I was having, again, I was a meditator, while I was, uh, I was woken up by having a, a little bit of an asthma attack. And, and, and there I was lying in bed, dark. Of course, my eyes are closed in a dark room and I can't breathe well. And the same feelings of panic began to arise in me. But immediately I became aware of the necessity of not hating what was arising. The lesson from the meditation cushion taught me, and, and, and when, when you're meditating, my mind is bright. When I was sleeping, I was in that silent reverie place. And so my mental energy was much lower, so much less influence over my mind. But I had enough awareness to know, don't hate this. And it rose. I even noticed the part of me that didn't like it, but I accepted the, the dislike. I accepted the feelings. I accepted everything, and I just stayed awake. In, in, in what I mean is I stayed aware. And then the wave of feelings went through, and I fell asleep again. And so meeting pain in whatever form, you have to meet it with skillfulness. If you hate it, you're lighting a match to it. But if you can open up, <clears throat> you can make a difference. And so I teach my clients a practice, and I use this acronym, SOS. So the first S stands for shift. And, and, and it applies to shift your attention. You have to recognize that your attention is being shifted towards some object of aversion, something that you hate. <clears throat> shift your attention. O stands for open. Open your awareness. And, and remember the three domains of awareness that I mentioned, the world, the body, the mind. Fully open your awareness. Experience the world. And if you're lying in bed with your eyes closed, you just have to listen. Then feel the body, everything, and then stay aware of the mind and the activity. Okay? Shift open state. So shift attention, open your awareness, and stay. This is with Pema Chodron. She's a Canadian uh, Tibetan monk who's written a number of books, and, and, and I love her. And she, she, this is a Zigger control teaching. When, you, when you're doing mindfulness, mindfulness is, in, in, in one definition, it's remembering to remember. You have to remember to remember, where is my attention? Where is my attention? And, and moment to moment to moment as they pass. So shift, open, stay. Stay mindful. Shift open. Stay. So tell me more about stay. How do we help ourselves stay? Is it when we catch ourselves doing that kind of float away, and then you have to remind yourself to remember? Yeah, yeah. And this is this is this is why meditation is so helpful because you're you're strengthening the I'm doing air quotes again the stay circuits, the circuits that manage the the focus of your attention. There's going to be a in, in your frontal lobe, I think it's the medial uh, frontal cortex, is where your locus of self arises. 
and 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 I'm not sure what uh, area of the brain where is your uh, your attentional circuits, but you want to exercise those circuits, the sense of self, the self-efficacious one with the intention. So you're 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 doing something in the moment. I'm intending to hold my attention on my breath, and then you exercise the relationship between those circuits and your attentional circuits that that your that that funnel the beam of your consciousness and and connect it with a particular object of your choosing you you got to get those two loci in your brain to connect with each other and that's what you do when you meditate and and that off the cushion that's the stay part stay present stay present stay present because there's so many subtle distractions um so this idea of SOS and, and staying in, in the experience. Um, I, I really like what you said about balanced consciousness, the idea of being globally aware and locally attentive. When you're working with clients that are really stuck in, um, stuck in being stuck, if you will, how do you start that kind of gentle shift. I can imagine a lot of psychoeducation and explaining to them about mindfulness, explaining how stress affects the body and the mind and, and how, um, you know, how it may be increasing suffering and our goal is to decrease suffering. But how, how do you help that client that is like, I've done meditation that didn't work. I did that app, you know, like, no, not going to sign up for it. Um, how do you start that process in, in a really, small bite that's digestible for a client that is really stuck and being stuck. Okay. So first of all, I get them to focus out and, and because they're the reason they have a hard time meditating or, or just even engaging with life is because they're fixated on their story. And that's that's like being disassociated in a way. Disassociation is farther down on the continuum of fixation. It's it's pathological at that point, right? You lose you you can't even get to the person anymore. They're so deep in their story, right? This they they are living in a small compartment of their mind when they're disassociated. Now, garden variety people are depressed and anxious. They're not disassociated, but they're on their way, and and they're 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 not they're also living in a room in their mind, maybe not as small, but it's it's still a room in the mind, and so you got to bring them out of that. So how do you do it? You get them into the body first, and or or maybe maybe I should say get them into the world first. Get them into the room that you're sitting uh, in with them. Okay, so. Uh, you can do that through their eyes and their ears. So if anyone's listening and you, if it's okay, if I can, can I lead a meditation right now? Just a very short meditation. Yeah, absolutely. As long as, as long as people who are listening and driving <laughs> don't stop driving. <laughs> yeah. No, so, so anyone, anyone, anyone who's driving can do this too. Okay, so it's super simple. You're going to keep your eyes open. And, and what I want you to do is I want you to pick something to look at. 
So if you're driving, just look ahead of you at the road or a, a, a license plate or something where your eyes are relatively still, but you're peripherally aware of everything. So eyes front, but peripherally see what's happening on the right side of your visual field, on the left side of your visual field. So what I'm saying is see the whole space. See the whole space. Even notice the space between your nose and the windshield. Literally the, the air. Notice the space. Good. Now already you should notice something that's happening in your mind. Notice that if you aware are you fully aware of the whole space outside of you, that your mind is already probably reasonably quiet. And the reason that is is because I'm I'm through this instruction, I'm causing your right hemisphere to come more online. The right hemisphere brings forth a world that is a whole and complete world. It's holistic, it's relational, and the right hemisphere is mute. It doesn't say anything. And so if you hold your eyes still, you're controlling the movement of your attention. Hold your eyes still, but see the whole space. And you can deepen the experience of the world by opening your ears. And notice, listen with your left ear first, then your right ear, listen behind you, listen in front of you. Envision a 360 degree sphere of sound, a, a space of sound in which you're sitting in the middle of and hear everything. Now the space of the world, that's the space of the world, sights and sounds, come out of your body and mind and experience the self in the world. That's the best way to tune a person in who's stuck inside. Then have them feel the surface of their body, what I call touch sensations. Sensations like warmth, coolness, tingling, pressure, pains, itches, those, those sensations, because those are non-emotional sensations. You can feel your body without being triggered by your feelings. Okay, so focus out involves opening up to a world of sights and sounds and putting your body in that world. Okay, all right, so very simple practice, but that'll bring a person out of the, the room in which they're stuck in their mind. Try Thank that. You. And so then it's a matter of helping that person appreciate, experience real time, the benefit of kind of zooming out attention, increasing awareness, and that that in and of itself produces a, a pleasurable feeling. If it's not pleasurable, it's less distress. Yes. Right. In in that moment, is as long as you disengage from a distressing narrative, it's already a little bit better. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so this is, imagine if you're watching a movie and a lot of people do this when they're under stress. 
they they distract by watching a movie because they lose themselves outside of themselves, right? And so this is just you using your life as, uh, and and I wouldn't even call it distraction because you're you're not focused on something abstract like a movie because a movie is another abstract construction you're focused on the actuality of your life you're driving down the freeway you know and you see and hear and feel your physical sensations fully and you just breathe and and relate to the sensations that you feel inside that are the residue of the story relate with kindness to those sensations because if you're stuck in a story of injustice like like i was and you're driving down the road and you're triggered and the reason i use this is because i've done it a thousand times i pull myself out of my story i shift open say shift i see the license plate i see the whole world i hear it i start breathing i relate to my body and then there's the residue of the anger still there and i'm just nice to myself and kind and just allow and accept and and after you do that long enough stay 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 you're going to be able to lessen the intensity of the distressing feelings and and can because moments pass you know next thing you know you're not mad anymore you turn on the radio and you're on to something else I remember reading research, and I don't, I don't have this sitting in front of me, um, but that talked about, you know, when we, when we actively try to avoid feeling states, and we, when, when researchers said to somebody who was having a, an, an unpleasant feeling, if you will, told them to think about something else, the brain region stayed lit up, and they were still kind of agitated. When the other participants were told to lean into that unpleasant feeling and kind of name it and experience it, the brain region calmed down. And it it reminds me of my toddler, you know, like wanting to tell me something. And the more I try to ignore him, the louder he's going to get until I just turn to him and say, yes, honey, what do you need me to hear? And then it's like, then I get my answer and then, and then he's good. You know, he, then, then the, the little voice saying, mom, 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 mom stops when we lean into it. And that idea that instead of running away from the unpleasant um, affective state, we can potentially lean into it and feel more empowered and reduce the stress response and therefore make it less likely for all of us to experience those horrible things that happen when we are um, highly stressed. Right. So the leaning in that you're describing, that's the open part of the shift open stay. Open with acceptance, acceptance and care and a wish for a higher good. You know, you're, you're just accepting what's there. You're not hating it. Open your awareness. I really like all of these things that you've presented today and the differentiation between attention and awareness and the application of mindfulness to um, not just our emotional experience of the world, but also our physical experience of the world and understanding a little bit better that connection between those, those two realms. 
um, for people who are listening and, and they're like, I need to know more about this. Um, where should they go? What resources do you recommend? What websites, what books to learn more about the impact of attention and awareness of mindfulness on, um, on physical conditions? Well, thank you. Um, and so, um, I, I'll, uh, I'll let, uh, listeners know that I have a YouTube channel, uh, Dr. Mark Pirtle Meditation and Mindfulness for Stress Relief. And I've uh, uploaded free resources, self-care resources. I have a class that's 12 hours long. So a whole bunch of, I think it's like 60 videos um, that will teach a person how to do what we've briefly discussed um, in this uh, dialogue today, but how to, how to become a better steward of their um, relationship to themselves and their feelings and thoughts, how to, how to shift their attention, how to open their awareness, also how to meditate. I have a 13-month guided meditation program that uh, is also a free resource on that YouTube page. If people want to connect with me personally, my website is uh, markferrispertle.com or uh, skillfullyaware.com. They both go to the same place. And um, yeah, I'll, also um, I have a, a film that I've recently produced and it's going through an educational run right now. So uh, professionals, behavioral health professionals around the country uh, have seen this. I've shown it in a number of um, uh, conferences in 2019. It's called, Is Your Story Making You Sick? And if you want to learn more about that uh, educational resource um, for yourself, your clinic, or your clients, uh, go to www.story.movie and you can learn more about it there. Thank you. Um, are there any particular texts or websites that you really like to help kind of, um, in addition to what, you, what you've already mentioned, provide additional information about these things where it's like, oh, you, you know, you read this one book and it was really helpful in, in breaking down. What are they? What are those books? Oh, yeah. You know, you know, you know who I really love is I love uh, Gabor Mate's work, um, Bessel van der Kolk's work, uh, Dan Siegel's work. Um, I uh, there's there's a there's a woman uh, PhD. Her name is uh, last name is Macy, and she wrote uh, a book on systems theory and um, uh, dependent origination. Uh, in, in Buddhism, how the mind uh, generates uh, its own suffering. That's a pretty dense book, but it was amazingly transformative. Fritjof Capra um, wrote a book on uh, the system's view of life. I think that's also uh, a, a work that has influenced me uh, tremendously. Um, yeah, I think, I think those are my primary um, influencers. Yeah, you're sure welcome. Thank you. Um, it looks like it's Mutual Causality in Buddhism and General System Theory by yes, Joanna Macy. <laughs> yeah, Joanna Macy. Thank you so much. You're that, welcome. It's 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 uh it's a heavy uh read, but um if you're the kind of person that's that's okay to um to go through something slowly and deeply, uh, it is really transformative. 
Um, thank you, Mark. This has been really enlightening. I'm sure I know for me and also for our listeners, thank you for taking the time to, to share this knowledge with us and also trying to connect us with other resources because it, it, it we are working in a world where we see not only the pain, but the resulting suffering and wanting to do what we can to lessen that. So thank you for giving us some more information on how to help our clients with that. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, the invitation to share and uh, um, yeah, I'm very grateful. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.